Well, this morning, I'm not going to say turn to this passage or turn to that passage yet, because you're going to be everywhere uh, before I'm through. Um, We've been studying encouragement, and uh, for last, well, this is the seventh message on it already, on encouragement. And most of us just say, well, it's encouragement. Or, it's funny how often people say, well, that was encouraging on their way out the door. Um, The study of encouragement is important to us because it is a ministry we are called to. I'm going to make that point especially next Sunday. It's a ministry we are called to. And I think with ministries that we're called to, we ought to know what they are and how we can uh, do what we've been called to do. Uh, The first time we looked at this topic was a Sunday night several weeks ago, and it had just simply the definition of the term, encouragement. And I've uh, reworded that every single week, stating the same thing, basically just reminding you that encouragement has in the middle of it the word courage. And the end at the beginning is to put into, and the meant at the end is the state of. To put into the state of, or put into the condition of, or put into the place of courage. And that's what the word is all about. To put one into a place or a state of courage. And what's fascinating to me is I began that study to look up the word encouragement as it appears in Scripture and to work it through. How many different Old Testament stories uh, focused on that simple word as I've been showing it to you week after week. The transition from Moses to Joshua is leading the Israelites into the Promised Land. Moses was given the job to encourage Joshua. I thought that was a rather interesting study there. You can catch up to that on the website if you want to hear it. Daniel, and even an angel, was given a ministry of encouragement to a pagan king named Darius. And I thought that was interesting. Because more times than not, we try to keep encouragement within the family. In the circle of the saints, or with the Christian culture. But this was an unusual source that these were... Godly people, especially an angel, a a godly being that's responsibility was to encourage an unbeliever, a pagan king. Very interesting scenario there. We had examples as well of David and Jonathan. Jonathan encouraging David. Jonathan, whose job David was taking, his whole future, his kingdom... Everything that uh, one might look forward to as the prince of the king was handed over to David. And we know the story. We went through that as well. But to put yourself in the shoes of a Jonathan, who maybe the world would say had every right to be jealous or every right to, to be uh, in opposition to David, he was the one that encouraged David thought that was interesting, very unselfish, and actually quite challenging when I think it through. The nature of encouragement. How unselfish are we? 
If it costs us something, are we still going to do it? That was a fascinating study. But then what's, what's also interesting is that the last couple of ones I've shared with you worked in an unusual way. There were outside sources needed to come in to encourage who were supposed to be spiritual leaders to do their job. And there were two examples of those. One in the days of Ezra, just to build the temple. It took a pagan king to encourage the people to build the temple. And then later it was in the day of Josiah that a young king starting at the age of eight was an encouragement for an older man already in ministry, the priest, to get up and do their job. Very unusual sources of encouragement there. But this is what I've noticed in the process of studying through the, the Old Testament. There's somewhat of a pattern. And uh, I'll simply express it to you because I think it's interesting. If you want to try to understand the Old Testament from Genesis all the way to Malachi and uh, what the spiritual, if you call it spiritual temperature or, or atmosphere, whatever you want to call that, if you start up here at a level and start to go in a circle, and yet you're spiraling downward, you've got a pretty good concept of the spiritualness of the people in Old Testament times. As the years went by, the best they had was even, it appeared, less spiritual than the generation before them. Have you ever noticed that in cultures? And time, even now we might even reflect upon that and think, how are we today compared to our generation before us and the generation before that and such. I, I don't know, looking back on history, we could see things a little bit better. But probably the most pronounced view of it was in the book of Judges. That the cycle of the Judges was very much like that. It was going round and round, but it was also taking a step down each round it took. To the end, the most spiritual of all the judges was a guy or a group we're going to read about here today that you're going to say, they weren't spiritual at all. And you're absolutely right. So we see this, this, this uh, uh, scene where things just seem to, to unravel a little bit as they go along and, and disintegrate as they go along. This may not sound too encouraging, but that's the nature of the message today. I might call this the discouragement sermon. Makes you feel real good already, doesn't it? What we're going to look at today is how not to do it. How not to do it. Because that's an important part of understanding encouragement. I share with you these examples, and we have lots of examples we can go through. I just had a handful there. Next week, I'm going to tell us what we are to be doing as a church body. But there's also the necessity to walk through this part where encouragement can be misused. Because encouragement is a powerful thing. It's a strong influence. And if it is misused, it can create terrible scenarios. That's what I aim to do with you here, because 
Anything that is absolutely great can be turned into something absolutely terrible if we aim it the wrong direction. Let me give you an idea of this. Most of you would be familiar with the word agape, right? You know what that word is? That's a good Greek word. Here's your Greek lesson for today, if you don't know it. It means love. Matter of fact, we get a little more specific with that. Because the Greek has three different words for love. And there is the, the kind that's purely a, a, what can I get out of it? You know, we might use it for uh, relationships where it's one-sided. We use it in our day and age. We use words erotic, and eros is the Greek word. And it, it's a self-focused kind of love. It's what I want. All right? There's that kind of love. You won't find that in Scripture. I find that interesting. There's phileo. That's a, a, a reciprocating kind of love. That's where you love and I love back. And many times we act that way as humans, don't we? Who do we like to, to be around? Those people who like us. And so it, it's, a, it's a natural thing. It's a very human thing. But it's also one that Scripture says a lot of. We are called to that kind of a relationship with one another, a reciprocating love. What you love, I love, we, we share together in that kind of sense. So the very common word, very everyday kind of word, that's love. There's also the word agape. We talk about agape because it is a sacrificial love. It is one directional too, but it's always out. It's always towards somebody else. It costs you something perhaps but you're going to love this person. It may hurt, but you're going to love this person. Uh, that is the word used more times about what God has done for us. When it says, for God so loved the world. Guess which word he's using? It's that agape word. It's, it's Much of the New Testament speaks to that, and it's what we're called to do as believers. We're supposed to learn that kind of love. Now you say, okay, that's a special love then, right? A unique love, a it, it, we might even say that's a Christian love. It is. It's what Christians are called to. Can it be misused? Two examples. And I found this interesting. For years I always thought there was one example. And then I found another one just recently. And I said, oh, here's another one too. I'd never noticed this before. Let me read you the verse. It's in uh, Luke chapter 11, verse 43. Jesus says, Woe to you, Pharisees! For you love the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplace. That's our word agape. What are they doing to it? They are using it for their own selfishness. They love the chief seats. Isn't that a funny word to stick in there? Shows you their very strong desire. They'll sacrifice anything for those seats, won't they? That's the nature of love. Now you say, well, that's not a good way to use that word, but it is used that word. Another way it shows up is in John 3, verse 19, where it says, This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. Isn't that a terrible way to use the word agape? They loved the darkness rather than the light. Those are two examples I could see where taking something great and turning it into, into something terrible. <laughs> we can say that of encouragement, too. When I, I went through all the examples of encouragement I could find in the Scriptures, and I thought, boy, this is going to be a great study. It's all positive. 
until I started to look at the scenarios and realized, oh no, <laughs> there's at least four examples where it is not. That's what I want to share with you today. Simply how not to do it. It's easier, folks, to learn from these people than to do it ourselves and learn the hard way. So let's see what they have done with our word encouragement so we know what to avoid. And I'm going to call this first one, because it is so common, actually, even in our day and age, uh, encouraged by falsehood. Encouraged by falsehood. Let's go to Second Samuel chapter 11. And if I said Second Samuel to you, whose life is that generally about? David. Oh no, David is an example of how not to do it. Second Samuel 11, verse 25. I'm going to read the verse and then I'll give you the scenario. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it. And so encourage him. Encourage him. He's telling a messenger to encourage Joab. Because Joab just lost a battle. Now let me tell you the story. Not a pretty one. You go back to what David is famous for when it comes to sin... And that's the incident with Bathsheba. Adultery. We, we have that story well ingrained in our thinking when we think of that encounter there. David had a problem. Bathsheba was with child. Her husband was one of his soldiers. His name was Uriah. He was out on the battlefield. Joab was his general. Joab was told by David to make arrangements for Uriah to come home. David was going to find some way to cover all this up. And he, he schemed in a lot of different plots to get Uriah with his wife Bathsheba. And that did not work. Uriah was a very loyal man to his, his king. And he wasn't going to do that. So David, out of frustration, decided that uh, he would send instructions to Joab to take Uriah and put him to the front of the army. And then all of them were to rush upon this city they were to attack. And as soon as they were get too close to the wall, the whole army was to step back and leave Uriah standing there by himself. A target for all those up on the wall. And that's exactly what happened. Uriah was killed in battle. And Joab sends a message back to David and said, Well, bad news today, we lost the battle, which was designed. And by the way, Uriah is dead too. This is David's answer. This is what he told the messenger to say when he went back to Joab. He says, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another, Make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it. And so encourage him. Encourage him. David knew better than this. 
He knew the battle belonged to the Lord. That's foolishness, what he just said. Don't you see? This is not true encouragement. He knew what true encouragement was. He's the author of half of the book of Psalms. David knew encouragement. But here he speaks complete nonsense. Why? Because he's seeking to cover up his sin, right? There's a phrase, and some of you would know it well. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when we practice to deceive. I heard that many times growing up, and I always thought, well, that's an interesting little thing to be able to call to mind. It's poetical. You can easily remember that little phrase. But I think the first time I actually saw it happen was when I was in high school and a friend of mine who, who was very athletic, exceedingly athletic, almost to the point where we were all jealous sick of his athleticism. Uh, he was on the team and he quit the team, and, but he didn't want to tell his father. His father was quite an athlete himself and took a lot of pride in his children and their, their skills. And, and so he wouldn't show up for practice. But then he had to go home and he had to come up with a story every single day as to why he was home. And it was never that I quit the team. This went on for quite a while until his father came to me and said, all right, tell me the real story now. By this time, it was so tangled up, there was no way to know which end was up. So he says, what happened? I said, well, he quit the team. It sounds easy just to say it, doesn't it? But more times than not, we, we tangle it all up, thinking we can somehow cover up something, just in our words. David thought he can cover up something here. Adultery. Lies, murder, schemes. Do you know David's sin involved more than just him and Bathsheba? He had to call on his servants to go and get her and bring her in. That involved them. Of course, it involved Bathsheba. It involved Joab, the army, the general. It involved Uriah, and it cost him his life. The child that was born to them died. The children that stayed and followed in David's family, if you read of their life stories, you're going to say, what a mess came of his children. One after the other with difficult things. The nation of Israel as a whole was punished by the Lord for all these things because of the unrighteousness that it brought about. The spiritual leadership that David had, that, that suffered greatly in this spot as well. Nathan the prophet had to go and confront him. It affected him too. We're still talking about it today. He thought he could cover it up with a few choice words. Did it work? No. Guess what word he was using? He was using the word encouraged, right? Encourage him. Encourage him. But he set it up on falsehood, on lies. He set it up. What a, what a mess this was. Don't the, let this thing displease you. 
That's ridiculous. Cover-up, murder, loss and battle, the morale of the army, an awkward situation for his general. Oh, encourage him. Isn't that sad? You look at the picture of it all. You want a good picture of this? I'll tell you the simplest one. Whenever we apply a layer of the spiritual to the top of the sinful, it's like putting putting put chocolate frosting on a pile of cow manure. You just read it. That's what David did with encouragement. It's a strong thing, folks. Can it be misused? Absolutely so. How would that parallel in ministry today? I, I'm, I'm afraid to even look it up. But how easy is it to spread a thin layer of spiritual over something that is wrong? Do we somehow make wrong right if we are encouraged at the end of the day? Does false ministry look right when we coat it over with foolish spiritual words? That's one thing that we should not do. If we're going to encourage, let's attach it to genuine spiritual words. Not these false things, not these lies, not these cover-ups. May our spiritual encouragement be genuine, sincere, godly. Not like that. Here's another one that's somewhat like that. I call it manufactured encouragement. It's amazing what people can make today. Manufactured encouragement. It's a good practice of our present world when something is wrong. Just spread the news that everything's right. You ever see that? Hmm. You know, all they really want is encouragement. And you can manufacture that with misguided results. Last uh, month, there was a uh, story in the news, and maybe you caught it, maybe maybe you just passed by it, because it was not un- too uncommon, I guess. It was just a few days before graduation in a college in America that um, a couple of students had climbed up on the roof of one of the buildings, an athletic building of some sort, and... Uh, one of them fell and died. He was to be a graduate in two days. And he fell off that building. And, and the report of it was such a tragic thing. And it is. That's terrible. But there were other influences there too. There were others with them when they were up on the building. It was about two or three in the morning. Does that start to give you a kind of flavor of where we're going with this? And there was alcohol involved too. And somehow, people are encouraged to do stupid things. And there's disaster that follows. We read about the disasters. In the book of Judges, we have a similar kind of thing happening in chapter 20. Chapter 20, verse 22, I told you, when you get toward the end of the book of Judges, you start to see if this is the best that the spiritual person is, we've got problems. And we've got it here in Judges, chapter 20, verse 22. 
Let me read you the verse and then set the story around it. But the people, the men of Israel, encouraged themselves and arrayed for battle again in the place where they had arrayed themselves the first day. Say, okay, what's this? Here's a story with very terrible ingredients. All right? We start with the Levite. Generally, if you're talking Levite, are you talking one who would belong to a group called the good guys or the bad guys? <laughs> we generally consider them good, right? Their job as Levites was to work in the area of spiritual ministry. They were assigned to, to work in the temple area to assist the priests to do these kind of things. Levites have, sometimes are the song leaders. They, they had a variety of purposes, but generally speaking, when we think of a Levite, we're supposed to be speaking of a more spiritually minded individual. Well, here's the ingredients that go with him, and I won't get into all of these, but this Le- Levite had a very wicked concubine, and they went to a very wicked city, and there was a very wicked crime committed, and there was a murder which involved the concubine. As a result of that, the Levite, to get the message out, decided to divide her up in 12 parts and send one part to each tribe in Israel. That's inflammatory, if you like the word. That's disgusting. But that was his response to this terrible thing. As a result, the people in all the tribes got all up in arms, and literally, they got their weapons, and they headed toward that town. Because they blamed the town for it. Well, that town was defended by a tribe called the Benjamites. And they said, you're not going to come and take our town. And so they stood defiantly against the rest of Israel. So now you've got 11 tribes standing on one side, one tribe on the other side. A war breaks out over that initially wicked scenario. My, how things fell apart. A war breaks out there. And that's where you are here in Judges chapter 20. Go back to verse number 12, where it says, The tribes of Israel set men through the entire tribe of Benjamin, saying, What is this wickedness that has taken place among you? Now then, deliver up the men, the worthless fellows of Gibeah, that we may put them to death and remove this wickedness from Israel. But the sons of Benjamin would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the sons of Israel. The sons of Benjamin gathered from the cities of Gibeah to go out to battle against the sons of Israel. From the cities on that day, the sons of Benjamin were numbered 26,000 men who drew the sword besides the inhabitants of Gibeah who were numbered 700 choice men. Now, out of those 700 choice men, there were, out of these people, 700 choice men were left-handed. Each one could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. You'd love to have them on your side, I think. But the men of Israel, beside Benjamin, were numbered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All of these were men of war. Now you got one group, 400,000 strong, all men of war. The other group, 26,000 men, but very accurate in what they do. And they're going into battle against each other. Generally, you go with the numbers. 400,000, that sounds like an easy one. Should have been. Should have been. Verse 20 says, Now the sons of Israel rose, 
went up to Bethel, inquired of God. Watch these words. Who shall go up first for us to battle against the sons of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Does that sound like the Lord was giving them spiritual direction? The answer is no. Military direction. They didn't ask spiritual questions. They went with an assumption. Of course the Lord would have us go and fight, right? They never asked anything but who should fight first. God says, send Judah. He could have said, send anybody, but Judah is supposed to be the head of the tribes. So he said, send Judah. Let Judah go. Did the Lord know what was about to happen? I think so. Yes. They asked the wrong question, folks. This was a spiritual problem, not a military problem. It's a spiritual problem. So the sons of Israel rose in the morning and camped at Gibeon. The men of Israel went out to battle against Benjamin. And the men of Israel raided for battle against them at Gibeah. And the sons of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and fell to the ground on that day. 22,000 men of Israel. That was not expected. 22,000 of that large army was dead. That was a stunning thing. They should have asked why. Why has this happened? I thought the Lord said, go into battle. They simply assumed he wanted them to attack evil. Yet, here's the thing, folks. The evil that they were attacking was indicative of their whole society. It wasn't just one person, or one tribe, or one town. All of them were acting this way. What they should have done is humble themselves before the Lord. Instead, they got ready for a battle. So, the people, verse 22, the men of Israel encouraged themselves and arrayed for battle again in the place where they had arrayed themselves the first day. That's manufactured encouragement. (laughs) They said, let's try it again. You know, maybe that's all we had to do. We just picked the wrong day. They were lucky. Maybe if we just, you know, the day's over, new day starts. You know how people are this way, aren't they? They keep trying the same thing over and over and over and over and over, thinking, well, it's going to be better this time. That's what they did. They thought a new day was the answer. But they were acting very very foolishly in this whole process. They never once asked the Lord about the spiritual temperature of themselves or these people. They didn't confront it that way. They thought it was a military thing. They made a huge mistake. They went out to battle the next day, and guess what happened? They lost again. You can read the rest of the story. It's very sad. Eventually, the Lord did give them some victory over that, but when they were done, there was very little left of the tribe of Benjamin. It's a sad way to end a book. But that's what false or manufactured encouragement is like. It's not based on truth. It's just, hey, let's just encourage the people to do it again. Like, let's encourage this guy to climb out on the building with us. And so many times they do, don't they? Only to their own disaster. 
You may say, okay, what's that got to do with our ministry, and why should we avoid that? You know, human tendency is to follow a crowd, right? They follow a crowd. They go wherever it goes. If we cover sin with some sort of manufactured encouragement, how many people are we going to hurt and deceive? How many are they going to fall from the results of, of our manufactured encouragement? We want to avoid this one, don't we? We want to start with the spiritual. <laughs> Let's talk to our, our relationship with the Lord. Let's encourage them in the Lord. Not some manufactured technique to, to solve a problem. That's a, that's a dangerous thing there. But our world is full of that. That's their way of covering up. Third one. When wrong is right. Encouragement. You know, David wrote this as well in Psalm 64. He says, hide me from the secret counsels of evildoers, from the tumult of those who do iniquity. They have sharpened their tongue like a sword. They aim bitter speech at, like an arrow. They shoot from concealment at the blameless. Suddenly they shoot at him and do not fear. They hold fast to themselves an evil purpose. The King James Version says they encourage themselves in an evil matter. Encourage themselves in the evil matter. You'll find the same type of phrase at the very end of the book of, uh, the first chapter of the book of Romans, where it speaks of those who not only go and break the ordinances of God and practice such things that are worthy of death, and not only do they do that, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. That's those who applaud when evil takes place. They clap and encourage you to do it all the more. There's Old Testament examples of this as well. In Ezekiel chapter 13, verse number 22. Ezekiel, that's an unusual book to go to. But the word is like this. Because you have discouraged the righteous with falsehood, when I did not cause him grief, but have encouraged the wicked not to turn from his wicked way and preserve his life. Then he goes on to add more to what the Lord was going to address there. But that phrase I stop with, you have encouraged the wicked not to turn from his wicked way. God's dealing with false prophets there. False prophets. The false prophets who, because they're a prophet, they start with a base of respect, right? We say, of course they're prophets. They should be worthy of respect. They, they, they should have some sort of authority because they walk around and say, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, right? So we assume that the Lord says it when Ezekiel would tell you, the Lord never said that. Matter of fact, the Lord never even sent them. But these guys go around wearing the name of the Lord as a badge to say what they wanted to say. And he says, they lie, they lie, they lie. And they mislead. And he uses a picture of whitewashing things. So that on the outside they look good, but guess what's on the inside? Jesus once said it this way. They whitewash the tombs. On the outside they look good, but the inside is full of dead man's bones 
says that's the way they were acting. They were misleading people, whitewashing everything, making it good. And then they came up with a scheme. The scheme to add to their own authority and to somehow support the very thing that they're doing. They encouraged the women to practice what they used, uh, these magic bands. I, I only picture like a, a bracelet or something. I'm not sure what it was, to tell the truth, and most scholars don't know really either. But uh, they had these magic bands for false divination. That's what it was all about. People would come to them and say, well, is this right or is this wrong? And somehow they could, like a mood band or something, I don't know what they did, but somehow they'd say, yep, that's the right, that's the wrong, whatever. And people started to trust their authority. And so he says that these people were practicing this particular thing. But here's how they were using them. They would bring before them a righteous man and say, did this man commit a crime? And they said, absolutely, he deserves death. They'd kill the righteous man. Then they'd bring the unrighteous man before him and say, did this man commit a crime? And said, oh no, he's great. And they'd encouraged the wicked people to remain wicked. That's how they were practicing in that day. They encouraged the wicked not to turn from his wicked way and preserve his life. I think there are times when I see the modern church so much like that. I hate to say it, but it's true. When we encourage sin as if it's right, that's a problem. That's an enormous problem. All for fear that we might offend people, all for fear that we we want to have certain people and influence and such like that. So we're afraid to speak up. As a result of that, we encourage what's wrong. And we do not stand for what's right. It goes on all around us today, right now. All around us today. If you get the, the local paper, you'll see it. About six pages in. Right in the middle of the page. Churches. Supporting what's wrong. Supporting what's wrong. Taking what's wrong and saying it's right. Encouraging people in it. That's how not to do it, folks. We're not called to that kind of a ministry. Where sin is encouraged and where righteousness is discouraged. That's wrong. One more and it's quick. I know what time it is. False worship that's encouraged. Simple little verse in Isaiah 41 verse 7. So the craftsman encourages the smelter, and he who smooths metal with the hammer encourages him who beats the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And he fastens it with nails so it will not totter. It's almost comical to read it. They're building an idol. And each one who's building their part of the idol is encouraging the next guy to build his part of the idol. And they all step back and look at it and say, hey, that looks pretty good. So they nail it down so it doesn't fall over. Kind of a funny sight. But they're all together in the process of creating this idol so it will not totter. Now the context of Isaiah, Israel is fearful. They're called to trust in the Lord. They live in a, a nation uh, with nations surrounding them that is just full of idolatry. It's everywhere. Idolatry. 
so much a matter of fact that they encourage each other in that sin of idolatry. The smelter encourages the craftsman. The craftsman encourages the guy who beats the anvil. Each one of them encouraging each other in the practice of idolatry. The majority of the chapter is on trusting God in the midst of those who won't trust Him. Who offer a cheap substitute for worship. That's what idolatry really was. A cheap substitute for the worship of God. In the progression of ministerial practices today, I think our environment's heading that way very quickly too. You say, well, are we going to start building all kinds of idols and hanging them up around the church and stuff? No, I don't think it's that. I think we offer cheap substitutes for genuine worship. Cheap substitutes. Because people want to worship. They say it's a felt need. So we, we, we want people to worship. Well, they're not too particular of who it is or what it is as long as it's worship. You know how dangerous that gets? At what point do we start to compromise because of false worship? It's a hard thing to, to answer, I think. But the symptoms are all around us today where we compromise with society and we, we're offering up forms of worship that just are not genuine. They're idols. And sometimes we encourage one another in that process. I say we in the biggest sense I could think of here. It's distressing how many times you hear in our culture and you hear it a lot. Oh, it's all good. Is it? That phrase drives me crazy. It's all good. No, it's not all good, folks. A discerning mind will notice that. The idolaters would sit around in that day saying, it's all good. And the craftsmen encourage each other in their work. We don't need that kind of encouragement. We want discerning encouragement. We want righteous encouragement. We want godly encouragement. We want genuine words of encouragement. Not these false examples that lead people away to their destruction. You see, encouragement is a serious thing, isn't it? For all the examples I gave you here today, and I know it's like, wow, we need a potluck just to get over this. (laughs) What is it? Well, we're called to a ministry of encouragement, and it's not something we do carelessly. We have to know what it is. Because it's a powerful thing. And I want to employ it for the honor of my Lord. For the good of His people. And I know that's what you want too. Next week we're going to get a whole bunch of that. Alright? Because that's what we're aiming to be. Encouragers. Let's do it the right way. Heavenly Father. We come before you today after reading these examples. And we're quite alarmed. That this has taken place, and yet it does take place. In our day and age, it's still out there. Lord, we want to be your kind of people. We want to walk your way. We want to talk with your words. We want your ministry performed through us for the sake of your people. 
we want to be the right kind of encourager. And though there may be many examples of how not to do it, we want to be among those who know how to do it. So I pray, Lord, at least today, may this warning settle in our hearts and and show us the seriousness of what you have called us to do. That we might be careful, that we might take the warning seriously, that we might be aware of what we're calling people to do. Our words are important. The direction we lead is important. May it always lead to you. Help us in this, Father. Challenge us with it, but Lord, draw us close to yourself, we pray. That we might be different in the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.